Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus, it's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here. It's so great that you guys would come in and spend your Sunday morning with us. It's so awesome. One of the things that we love to do here, if you're visiting or new to the church, that we love to study our Bibles, which is probably a good thing if you go to church. You're hoping that they at least open their Bibles and study. Uh, But I say that um, with this in mind. We love to study Bibles... Bibles, books in the Bible. We love to start a book and then read the whole thing, not on the same day. But you know what I'm saying? Like we try to work our way through entire books of the Bible. All that to say, back in October, we started the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to finish 1 Peter today, which opens up for next year a brand new book in the Bible. How many people are wondering what book we're going to study next, right? Yes, yes. There's a few people been asking me. Well, I'll give you the overachievers in the room a heads up. We're going to go to Genesis. So if you want to start reading in Genesis, uh, I, know, ooh, I know, right? <laughs> We're going we're gonna to talk like when God drowned everyone on the earth. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's right. So we're going we're gonna to do all that stuff, but we're going to do Genesis a little bit differently. It's, it's a narrative. It's a story. And we want to look at the stories within the story. And we hope to bring out 23 maybe different weeks where we're looking specifically for Christ, for Jesus in the stories of Genesis. So um, I know some of you people might already know some of uh, how that works, but um, I've just bought a couple new books that really will help us get get to that and an understanding of that, which just so you know, I'm completely nerding out over. I don't know about you guys, but when I get an opportunity to buy new books, I'm like so excited. In fact, I'll I'll share this with you. Um, Most people would admit when they were younger that their most um, sleepless night excuse me, was Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, when you could open up all those gifts and all the excitement that is. But for me, my most sleepless night was the day before a new school year. Like the day before the first day of school, I was just excited to see what was going to happen because I was that guy who was convinced that this was going to be the year that I was going to be one of the cool kids right? I kept telling myself, Jeff, this is, you're not going to be the nerd anymore. When you go into eighth grade, you're finally going to arrive. I'm going to buy polos, pop my collar, and everyone will think I'm awesome, right? That's, thank you for that. And that's been the refrain of my whole life is we get into like New Year's Eve. Everyone's thinking, man, next year's going to be the year. Right? We're going to make these changes, plans and, and goals and all kinds of stuff. Maybe some of you write down what are some of your resolutions, is that we call them, right, for next year. Here, here's what I know, and especially since I've been studying First Peter. We're going to get to First Peter in a minute. First um, Peter is addressing some things uh, that I think would be prudent for us to look at in our lives as we look forward to next year. 
In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. I think what Peter would address for us is that he's, he's showing us ways that we can do things that could be both God honoring and pleasing to him. And I don't know what you're planning for next year, what big goals you have, if you're going to gain weight, lose weight, whatever it is, get married, not get married, whatever that looks like. You know what I mean? Whatever it is for next year, right, I would pray that you would be God honoring and God pleasing in everything that you do. Um, so we had a Christmas gift exchange for the staff. It's a white elephant thing, which they say, they, you ever do those things where you have like a, a $15 value on your gift? Which by the way, I never listened to those things. I got my person $60 shoes, just so you know. So everyone wants me to get their name next year. I'm just saying. But anyways, so Joe, Pastor Joe got a bobblehead Jesus that sits on his car dash, right? <laughs> Which I think is absolutely brilliant. So wherever he goes, he's seeing Jesus nod or shake his head and everything that he's doing. We need more bobblehead Jesus in our lives is what I'm trying to say. But first Peter, he, he talks to us about some things. He's, he's going to talk to two groups of people. And I would argue that our lives could be in either group of people at any given time. The first group of people are what he calls elders. I'll call them leaders. Elders specifically are spiritual leaders in the church. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I also agree that the, the principles that Peter is writing to the Christians, the principles that he's giving to Christian leaders, spiritual leaders, also would apply to those of us who aren't elders, but our leaders may be in our homes. If there's a dad in the room, listen, God's talking to you about some things. Right? If you're a parent, there's leadership responsibility upon you. And, and these things could apply to your life. And then secondly, there's a time of your life when maybe you're just a follower Right? You might be, for example, a boss in your job. You might be the supervisor that makes the decisions or whatever. But I'm telling you, whenever you have to go to the emergency room for something, like heaven forbid, um, you learn quickly that you are no longer in charge and it's the nurses and the doctors who are making all the decisions for you. And what we would do well is to learn to follow well. And Peter addresses both leaders and elders and then followers or what he calls younger people. And so I just want to look at some of those things. And my, my whole goal in this is maybe we set up for the next year um, some things in our life that would be both pleasing to God and honoring to him and be a benefit to us and the people around us. So with that being said, let's read 1 Peter chapter 5 if you brought a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one um, underneath the seat around you. Uh, it's a hardback black Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you. It's a gift. We'll buy more. Um, since Renaissance has been having services, seven years now, I think, we've given out, I bet, six to eight cases of Bibles. So just please take one with you. We will buy more. They're yours to keep. Every person should have a copy of the scriptures. It's just so beneficial. If you want to use that hardback Bible, you can turn to page 1296. And that'll take you right to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 14. And you don't have to panic or nothing. I'm going to put the words on a screen. You can follow along with me there. And let's start in verse 1. Peter writes, so I exhort the elders, right? Here's the leader part, among you. And he says, as a fellow elder myself and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight. Don't do so under compulsion, but do it willingly. Do it as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And he says, when the chief shepherd appears, anyone want to guess who the chief shepherd is? Jesus. Hey, just real quick. If I ever ask a question in church, the answer is Jesus, just so you know. So let's try that again. Any idea who the chief shepherd is or the great shepherd is? It's Jesus. Yes, yes. When he appears, then you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. I, Peter, likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time that God may exalt you. And cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the entirety of the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And to him be the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And a little postscript here. Paul then tells us how this letter came to be. It's by Silas or Silvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him. And I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, he says. And she, whoever she is, right? She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you hello. And so does Mark, my son. So please greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. When I read that last line, verse 14, it says, greet one another with the kiss of love. It, it dawned on me that there are so many things in the scripture that we do not do. So after service tonight, I'm, or today, I'm going to be standing at the back door here. <laughs> Why are you licking your lips, Michael? I don't understand. <laughs> Joe's going to be standing at the back door. <laughs> That'd be awesome. So anyways, I do. I just have a few things to say. So let's, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank, thank um, you that as we really plan to go into next year, we can come to you and we can say things like this. We could say, God, fix it. Fix the things in our life that have been wrong. Help us to go in the right direction next year. Correct our thinking where we've gone wayward. Correct our motivations when we've been motivated to please ourselves instead of you. Uh, fix everything that is wrong in our lives. And then, God, as that works its way out through us, it will begin to fix the world. It'll begin to fix the, the relationships that we have with our families. It'll begin to fix the relationships that we have with our coworkers and employers and our neighbors and everything. God, if you, if you work through us first, then it will change those around us. And God, we, we pray for that. God, help us to be mindful of everything that you do. And as we look to next year, uh, may we be mindful that you want to be a huge part of our next year as well. God, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Peter, just by way of review, because it's been a while since we've been studying Peter. We took a break for December to do the Christmas series, Unwrapped. And um, I just want to remind everyone that Peter's writing to Christians that are the, uh, in exile, that they've been scattered around all of the you know, modern Judea, uh, uh, Asia Minor and stuff. A lot of Christians, the gospel messages, uh, having churches planted all around this area. And he's writing to these Christians because many of them are facing persecution now. Um, Nero is the governor or emperor in Rome, and Nero is not a fan of, of Christianity. In fact, Nero, history would tell us, has a, a propensity to take Christians, live Christians, impale them with stakes, dip them in tar, and light them on fire to be the lights or the torches in his garden when he'd have his evening barbecues. I mean, Nero hated Christianity. Nero is the same guy who would take Christians, alive Christians, sew them into the skins of animals, throw them in the Colosseum, and then let lions and beasts devour them while everyone cheered and ate popcorn. I added that second part. I'm just saying, Nero is a bad, bad dude. And so the Christians are facing persecution. And so Peter starts to write to the people who are leading Christians, who are people who desperately need help. And he says here in verse one, I exhort the elders among you, the other people who are leading Christians, the other people who are leading people who need, need help. He says, I too am a fellow elder. I love this. He doesn't place himself above them, but he stands next to them in the work that they're doing. And then he gives his resume. And it's so interesting that he picks the words that he picks. And he says this, he says, you know, I'm exhorting you. I'm an elder, a fellow elder with you, and I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is significant because Peter could have said any number of things. He could have said, I, Peter, a fellow elder alongside of you, I was a witness of Jesus or Christ's transfiguration. Has anyone heard of the transfiguration? There's this really cool moment that you can read about in the gospels where Peter um, is standing with Jesus. Jesus had basically just told all of his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He was going to be murdered on a cross and then be thrown into a grave and be resurrected on the third day. He just told them, this is what's happening. Be prepared for it. And then he takes Peter, James, and John with him up the side of a mountain where they all begin to pray. And in this moment, it says, Jesus is transfigured. Now, what does transfigured mean? It's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual concept, but we know this, that Jesus is the son of God. He is very much God himself. And when he came to earth, he clothed himself in flesh. He came to earth like one of us in a, in a, as a man. But on the side of this mountain, something miraculous took place. He began to change in front of them. I think his divinity began to outshine his humanity in that moment. Luke tells us that his face began to change. And then all of a sudden, his clothes began to glow dazzling white. Peter was there. Peter could have said, I'm a fellow elder with you. I've seen Christ transfigured. I've seen that he is God in the flesh. I've watched him change from man to God and back again. It's the wildest thing, but he doesn't. I, Peter, am a fellow elder alongside of you. He could have said, I'm a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, which he too has seen. Peter, we know, is one of the first people to run and dive into the tomb to see Jesus' grave clothes scattered on the floor because Jesus is no longer there. As the angel said, he is risen, right? He could have said that, but he doesn't. He says something else. He says, I, Peter, am a fellow elder alongside of you, and I've been a witness to the sufferings of Christ. There's something particular in this that we need to understand. I believe it's, it's Peter's way of also expressing this reality. 
that Christ has come to suffer for the world. And that sounds so bizarre, especially if you have no understanding on what he's saying here. Here's what we know from the Old Testament, just knowing who God is, that if a person sins against God, then judgment is due that person. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, he wouldn't be a just judge if he lets people go around breaking laws and doing sinful things. So of course he's going to judge people. So you and I are due suffering because of our sin. But Christ comes to the earth and absorbs the suffering for us. This is so beautiful. When Jesus was on that cross, the Bible tells us that God poured out his wrath upon his son. The punishment for all of our sins was poured upon Jesus. How much of his wrath was poured out on Jesus? All of it. This is, oh, when you see this, it is so good. All of his wrath was poured upon Jesus. So just on a side note, let me step over here for a minute and, and speak to you for, for a moment. If ever, if, whenever you and I sin, right? We still sin. I'm the only one. When we still sin, we begin to feel shame and condemnation as if God is now going to punish us for what we've done wrong. But you need to understand this. He is not going to punish you, those of you who are in Christ, because he's already punished his son, Jesus. And it's when we begin to understand that reality, that beautiful love that he's given us, salvation through Christ, his loving kindness brings us back to repentance. It causes us to want to change our sinful ways and go back to where God is. The life of a Christian is one of repentance, Martin Luther said, right? We just continue to go back to where God is because all of us stray from him. And so when Peter says that he's been a witness to Christ's sufferings, he's pointing to Christ, the Messiah, the Savior come to save us and to remind us that Christ did so under no obligation. Oh my goodness. He did so willingly. He did so for you and for me. He'll add later that, the idea that Christ would come and suffer for us, it, it makes it difficult for us to say, I don't feel like suffering for you. It's, it's a, a challenging statement to come out of our, a challenging statement to come out of our mouth saying, well, I don't want my life to be difficult, Lord. I, I want it to be perfect and awesome because you're perfect and awesome. But I'm telling you what, those people who follow Jesus, it does not always end well for them. This false gospel that many of you have been taught that somehow God just wants to be your cosmic Santa Claus or genie in a bottle that you can somehow rub his lamp with certain prayers and certain tithe offerings and certain types of things that somehow God is obligated to give you things. Here's what God's obligated to give you. Nothing. But he willingly gave his son, Jesus, who suffered for you. All right, that's an aside. But Peter says that I have been a witness to Christ's sufferings. So he continues on. He goes, then shepherd, let's continue reading this. Uh, shepherd the flock of God in verse three, that is among you. Uh, all right. One of my favorite things to do on Sundays is to confess things to you. And for some of you, it's your favorite thing too, is when Jeff actually just tells all the <laughs> wicked and horrible things that are in his life. But I'll, I'll confess to you when I, when I read this, um, it, it hit me again. Shepherd the flock of God. Peter's reminding all of the leaders, the spiritual leaders in all the churches who, in eternity, right? That these people belong to God 
first. Now that's huge because some people would say in a position like I'm in, a pastor of a church, well, how many people are coming to your church? How many people is this now? How many people you got in your church? How many people are you oversee?ing blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I, I don't know. All I just know this, all the people belong to God and they, they filter in the door. I teach them about Jesus. They filter out and then they go on their ways. I, I don't know all this other stuff on who, who, who's belonging to this church and not belonging to the church. Know this, I take very seriously that the people that come to this church are Jesus first. And I've just been given an opportunity to tell them the truth about him. I will say this, and I mean this seriously, if you could look at me for a moment. If, if you come to Renaissance for a while and you decide to leave and, and worship at another church, hallelujah, praise God, amen to you, whatever it is. Please let me know where you're going, Right? Otherwise, I'll stay up at night and I'll be thinking about where you've gone. If I know that you're somewhere else, hallelujah, you belong to God anyways. They can have you. And I mean that. They can have you. <laughs> right? Because if you don't let us know where you're going, then I'm wondering. I wonder if they've fallen, if they slipped. You know the story in the Bible where there's 100 sheep, 99 are in the fold and there's one gone. And the shepherd leaves everything to go find the one. That's my mind. Wonder where he's at. I wonder what they're doing. Wonder how they are. Wonder this and that. If you just drop a note, email, right? Anything. So all of these people, I believe and know it to be true, belong to God. All of you belong to God. I just have an opportunity to teach and to shepherd and to help. And I do this not under compulsion, which is what Peter's writing about. He says, you don't do this because you have to do it. You do so willingly. I talked to someone the other day and I said these words. I said, if I wasn't pastoring a church, I promise you I would still be doing ministry. I just know it. I think it's something inside of me. I would lead a Bible study. I'd be leading worship somewhere. I'd be serving at the Salvation. I'd be doing something. I just know I would. And if I wasn't doing this, I would definitely be doing something else because I'm I'm willing to do it. I don't do so under compulsion. Do you know, I've, I've actually talked to pastors who, who feel like the, Sunday is the last thing that they want to go do. They don't want to preach on Sunday. They, it's labor to them to go preach on Sunday. To go to church is a challenge and it's difficult for them. I'll confess this to you. I've never felt that way. Oh, it's stressful. You guys drive me nuts. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but I've never been unwilling. I had a friend of mine um, give me a church, give me a book, sorry. Give me a book that's called, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. And when he gave it to me, he wrapped it in brown paper and set it on my desk for fear that if anyone saw it on my desk, they would think, oh no, Jeff doesn't want to go to church anymore. The book is brilliant. And if you have an Amazon account, I'll just throw that out there. So you don't want to go to church. The argument is I don't want to just get myself busied with religious activity. I want to do something that's impactful. I want to know the mind and heart of Christ and follow him. Church stuff, and I agree with that. Amen? Amen. So anyways, where was I? Here we go. Not, not under compulsion, but willingly. Now, this is where I want to make an application to those people who would say, ah, but this is just for spiritual leaders in the church. This is for elders who eld people. Is that what elders do? I don't know what they do. <laughs> and the deacons deek is what they do. <laughs> this, is, this is where I think um, this could apply to many of us. And I think specifically to, to dads in the room. If there's a dad here, 
that this, all of the stuff that he's talking about would apply to your life. That you do so willingly. You, you do it, don't do it under compulsion. Like, oh, I just got to raise this kid. There's an, there's an opportunity for you to lead your children well. And he says, you don't do these things for shameful gain or for the, for the love of money, for money. And you don't do so domineeringly. You don't rule forcefully or overuse your authority. Um, this is a challenge for me. Sometimes I just stand before my children and I say things like, because I said so, right? And you know, when your parents used that with you, it didn't work and it's not working with them. And then Peter continues, he goes, you lead the people by an example. Now, this is where I just, I just about quit studying because I'm like, this is where it's so hard for me. This is what I love about the scripture. This is what I love about the Bible is when you read it and it sometimes just pierces you in your heart. And it's like, it's the very thing that you need to get you out of the rut that is called your life to remind you of what God has called you to do. I have been called just so you know, to lead people by example, not just because I'm a pastor of a church, but because I'm a husband, but because I'm a father that's what God is calling me to do. Lead by example. Have you heard the phrase, do what I say, not what I do? I need, if I want my daughters to fall in love with Christ, I need to live my life before them in love with Christ. If I want my daughters to find merit in studying the Bible, they need to see me studying my Bible. If I want them to see what a loving husband is supposed to look like, I need to model that before them. One of my favorite things to do is my daughters bring boys home now. It's the new thing. They're teenagers, <laughs> right? It's maddening to me. Like if they ever want to go anywhere with a boy, I said, I've got one rule. And they both, both my daughters know this. The boys have to meet me first. Right, and it's a typical thing. I shake their hand way too hard. <laughs> you know, I, I stare them in the eyes and I just, I'm, I'm doing this not to frighten the kid. That's just a bonus extra right there. <laughs> I do this so my daughters understand. This is what a, 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 a godly man would do. He would come in and meet the parents first. I'm just trying to instill some of this stuff. So I'm trying to lead them by way of example. And God wants that for us, not just leaders in the church, but also for parents and supervisors and et cetera. Are we tracking, right? I can move now? Just nod and I'll just keep going. Okay, thank you. So we're examples. And out of all of this that Peter writes in these first four verses, I just kind of see this one underlying thing. Care for other people is what he's saying care for others. And this is challenging for many of us because in our world, it's so easy for us to say things like, well, I'm going to take care of myself because if I don't take care of myself, then no one will take care of me. And it's so easy to push others aside and just focus on ourselves. But do you remember when Jesus was accosted by the religious leaders and they came to him trying to trick him? They said, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the 600 and some commandments we read in the Old Testament? Rabbi Jesus, which one would you say is the greatest? And Jesus is super brilliant, right? He says this, he goes, well, the first one is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Check, that's a good one. And the second one he said is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If we could just internalize that, if we could just begin to lead and share and care and help others around us, you'd be shocked at how different your family would look, how shocked at how different your workplace would look, how different the world would look. If we could just absorb and internalize that one idea. Peter's saying, care for other people. 
You're elding them or eldering them. Or you're leading them. You're helping them. And I love the fact that he uses the phrase or the terminology of a shepherd. Sheep, I've heard it once said this, this way, that sheep are proof that evolution or the survival of the fittest is, is not a real theory because sheep wouldn't be here because they're stupid. They're skittish, they're fearful, they, they don't hunt, right? They just, they just fall into uh, pits and you have to drag them out and they, they need shepherded. And what he's saying is, is God is a great shepherd to us. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he's talking to us about shepherding others, helping, helping others find the place where life is, where food is, where water is, etc. And I love that he's placed that um, on top of us who are our leaders, and then he begins to speak to people who are not just leading, but he, start, he starts talking to people who have to, to follow now. And again, this is challenging for us because he says right here in verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject, submit yourself to those people who are in authority over you. And this is where we go, not in America. I don't think so, bro. That might work in the East, but not in America because we do everything by ourselves. My mama said this, my daddy did this, and we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We do it our way. I'm not going to be subject to anyone. Thank you very much. Except it's not an option for us. It's a command in scripture. Submit yourself to the authorities that are placed over you. Now, by no means am I saying that because I'm a spiritual authority. In fact, that idea frightens me. But I see this modeled in Christ's life when he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane and the, the eve of his crucifixion has come and he's standing there, kneeling there, praying there, lying there. What would you be doing on the night you're about to be crucified? And he says, Lord, if there's any other way that this could happen, let's do that. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. This is, this is what Christ models for us. He submits himself to the right authority over him. You and I, hear me, we would do well to do the same, right? Married couples in a room, sit down for a lovingly, uh, wonderful spousal Bible study and read Ephesians chapter five. You're welcome. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands love their wives. Figure this stuff out. And I'm telling you, this stuff works. All right. Room got cold all of a sudden, so we'll move. <laughs> I'm not scared of you guys. I'm just telling you, um, but I, I feel it. I feel the pressure there. Um, continuing, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. He says, it's like make it part of your wardrobe. Uh, clothing yourself with humility is like putting on an apron. It's the picture of an apron. It's, it's the same picture that Peter saw on the, on the, again, the night that Jesus was to be crucified where Jesus tied a towel around his waist and then bowed before all 12 disciples. Yes, even the one who was to betray him and washed their feet. This is clothe yourself in humility. All right, trying to find my spot. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. And then he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we've heard that before. And every time I, I read that, I think of, I have this mental picture of God, like sort of holding back a small child as, the, as a kid's just really angry with dad, wants his own way. And he's trying to get at him. And God's just like, no, not today. He's like, he can't overcome him. Or maybe, maybe that picture of the kid that's at the mall on the leash, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 
And the kid's like, hey, I'm going to Hobby Lobby. Like, not today. And you just yank them back. I, I have this mental picture of that's what God is doing for all the, the prideful people in the room. I've got this figured out. I'm going to go my way. I know what I'm doing. And they run, and God's like, kink, not today. And you find yourself over and over um, frustrated, disappointed, upset over how things are going. I'm, listen, if you're making any resolutions for next year, if you're making any plans for next year, memorize that verse. God opposes the proud. He doesn't just slow you down. He doesn't just trip you up. He stands in direct opposition to everything that you're trying to do. And I wondered why. Why would God do this? Why is this a character of God? Why is, uh, is, he, is he opposing uh, pr- prideful people? And, and I've learned this, that, and Peter would know this to be true, and I can give you an example, but prideful people, they think they can do it all in and of themselves, and they do not need God. They, they see their own strengths and use them instead of allowing themselves to be weak at any moment. Peter was the guy who stands before Jesus with all of the other disciples and says, Jesus, I don't know about these fools, but I'll never leave you. I'm here until the end, fist bump. That's what happens in the Bible. You can read it. And then anyways, and in the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter denies him three times before the sun comes up. That he was, his, his prideful ways were, were knocked out from underneath him. And then after Jesus was resurrected, Uh, Jesus finds Peter and he goes to Peter and gives Peter an opportunity to be forgiven. And this, this mark of humility changed Peter's life. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Weakness, it seems, is a, a detriment. Again, particularly in our culture, um, the apostle Paul he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He tells this story of his life. He says, I've got this thing in my life. Uh, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. Now, many scholars have debated for centuries, what exactly is Paul d- talking about with this thorn in the flesh? Some people think it's because he has bad eyes. Uh, maybe uh, it's a medical condition. Some people think it's just some, some guy or people have just been following Paul around everywhere he does ministry and they're just backbiting him and causing turmoil and frustration for him. We don't know what it is. Paul doesn't tell us what it is, but he says, I have this thorn in the flesh and I've prayed earnestly that God would take it away. Look here in, in chapter 12, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians. He says, three times I have pleaded. Have you ever pled with the Lord for something? You know what that feels like. I've pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you. And my power, he said, this is beautiful because God is all powerful and all perfect. Did you know in the, in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis it says, in the beginning God created, it's out of God's power that he created everything that exists. Hear that, all powerful. It's, it's in this moment that my power, he says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And those prideful people that refuse to let themselves be weak never experience God's power. God opposes the proud. You need him. (laughs) You, oh my gosh, and some of you need, need him, as do I. We need him. His power is made 
perfect in our weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I'm going to boast all the more. I'm going to brag all the more of my weaknesses. And I'll do so so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. Ah, I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then and only then am I strong. This is... This is what Peter is addressing. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he continues saying, you can eventually, you can cast all of your anxieties upon him. This Greek word that's translated anxiety, it's a picture of a a fork in the road. And this is the road where God is. And your anxieties are like another way to go. And the further and further you get into anxious moments and other thoughts, they're just pulling you further and further away from God. Peter would say, don't, don't turn down the road of anxiety and return to where God is. And you can give all of these, these duplicitous thoughts, these other thoughts that pull you away from God back to God. And he's strong enough to hold onto them. Maybe for 2018, this is the year you actually try it. Have you ever, have you ever um, challenged the scripture in your life? He says, listen, if this is really true, then I'm going to stand on it and believe in it. And I want God to prove it to be true. Maybe some of you need to do this. Cast your anxieties upon Jesus next year and watch what he does. This idea of being separated from God is a dangerous place to be. To follow the, 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 the metaphor of the sheep, if a sheep wanders from the shepherd, you will find yourself in peril. And then Peter begins to address this issue of, of a, a Satan or the devil prowling around like a lion looking for sheep to devour. Anxieties will pull you away from God and, and Satan will have his way. He will chew on you and chew on you and chew on you. In fact, the word adversary that's used here, it means someone who is anti-righteous. The devil is anti-righteous. He doesn't want you to have any righteousness in you. And the further he can pull you away from God, the more. Trust God in your anxieties. And I could go on and on and on and on, but I've ran out of time. So um, I just want to pray for us. I want to pray... I guess, well, okay, so um, I I have a hundred things. You're probably thinking, he's really stupid. I'm not. I have a lot of things I want to say. I just don't know which one to pick right now. I, um, I pray every Sunday before I get up here, and that's probably also a good thing that I should do. I say, well, you should. You're a pastor, right? Yeah, I think so. But I pray specifically for two things, and it seems to be on repeat here for me. I always pray this, that Christ would be first and foremost in everything that we say. And if you ever get the impression that when you come to Renaissance and I'm asking you to try harder or do something better, you're not hearing me right because Christ has done it all for us. Our... our, The ask that God places before us is just that we believe and follow him. We don't have to perform for him. Christ performed to perfection and has won for us. We believe by faith and have won alongside of him. So I always pray for that, that Christ would be first and foremost. Secondly, I pray for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if you don't know, is the third person of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He's every, I feel weird holding my middle finger talking about him, but He's every bit God. 
He's the power and the authority of God. And he's available to us. The, the second chapter of Acts tells us this, that, that Jesus loosed the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost for Christians. That we have the power of God inside of us that compels us and changes our lives. So I stand in my office every Sunday and I ask the Holy Spirit to come. Because you know what I can do? Not much. But what the Holy Spirit can do will change your life forever. So I want to pray for us. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and he would begin to speak to your mind. He'd begin to speak to your heart. He, just, he does what he does. I don't need to explain it. If you, if you know what I'm talking about, you'll experience it, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would help us. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to really focus on him as we go into a new year, a new beginning, a new opportunity. That we can live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God. And in the name of Jesus, there are people here who need to understand this, that you can overcome that, that very thing that you're still bound in. You've been a Christian for a long time. I understand that. But there's this one particular sin that you always find yourself back to. It's impure thoughts, impure actions. I don't know what it is. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit has come to give you the power to overcome that. In Jesus' name, I believe that. Jesus has come to, to assault the fear in your life. There's, there's fear in this room. There's people just afraid of what's going to happen. And I'm, I'm telling you, um, one of the greatest commands in all of Scripture is to, to uh, do not be afraid. God would always say. The angel would come, don't be afraid. God is coming, don't be afraid. God is here, don't be afraid. There's no reason for fear in your life as a believer, none. But yet you're fearful. And I'm saying, in Jesus' name, God wants to come and replace fear with the joy of the Lord. This is something only he can do. And as I pray, I just ask him to do it. I just ask him to do it. Would you believe with me? Let's pray together. God, we come to you in Jesus' name, not in our name, not in my name, not in Renaissance's name, not in any other name, but Jesus, that, that you would come in the presence of your Holy Spirit and help us. I pray for restoration in families today. I pray for restored relationships between dads and daughters, dads and sons, husbands and wives. I pray this in, in places that the world would say uh, that this relationship is broken and cannot be fixed. I, I pray in Jesus' name that that is not true. Lord, I pray boldly against the spirit of complacency that has settled itself into the Christian church. That our lack of persecution and suffering does not mean that we get to be complacent. God, I pray that you would awaken us out of the slumber that is American Christianity and you would call us into a more bold way of living for Jesus. We'd be more willing to endure hardship and suffering for Christ, that we no longer be those people who look for the path of least resistance. God, we thank you for what you've done this year as we've already prayed. And, and we, 
we pray that you open up our minds to what you want to do for next year. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, thank you for giving us Jesus. And thank you for your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.